they're standing and they're applauding that dramatic performance by James Orville and Christopher Dean. Alex Bilodeau. It takes a lot to make him happy and he is clearly pleased. She's up, she's moving nicely. She's got it. Yes! yes. It is Off The Podium, an Olympics podcast coming to you today for another interview episode. We are speaking with Australian Olympic snowboarder Steph Prem. She competed at the 2010 Vancouver Olympics in Border Cross. And this really is such an amazing interview, a very inspirational chat here with Steph. Goes into detail about her journey through the sport, how new and fresh snowboarding was still when she first started into it, particularly in Australia during the late 90s and early 2000s. Overcoming disappointment of not making the 2006 Olympics and the entire experience of the 2010 Games. And the truly inspirational story that comes from an incredibly horrific injury post 2010 Olympics where she essentially was likened to falling off a one-story building or being in a horrific car accident with the extent of injuries she had from a fall in a competition in Italy and just how she was able to use that to overcome everything into an amazing new career today which is helping so many people out there on a wider scale of things. This is an amazing chat, one of the favourite ones I've ever done here on Off the Podium and you're going to get a lot out of it. So here is our chat with Australian Olympic snowboarder Steph Prem. Always a pleasure to talk about the great sport of snowboarding and we are thrilled to be joined on the line today by an Olympian from 2010 in Vancouver. She competed in border cross and has also gone on to forge a very successful career in the wellness industry also has you've heard a voice on a couple of the last olympic games commentating on both channel 10 and channel 7 and i'm so excited to learn more about her journey to the olympics and her fascinating journey after the olympics pleasure to welcome off the podium steph prem steph first of all welcome to the show it's a pleasure to have you on the show today thank you so much for having me it's an honor to be here it's always exciting to talk to any Olympian on this show. Obviously, you were talk, you and I were talking a little bit off air about kind of uh, what we're doing here and everything. And we obviously uh, worked together at Channel 7 back in uh, February, which is insane to think that that's uh, so long ago. But it's, it's always an interesting journey to hear from somebody like yourself who has gone on to so much extra stuff outside of your snowboarding career, which, I mean, do you almost get a chance to talk about snowboarding still because you've done so many things after <laughs> snowboarding I don't know if this is something that you even get a chance to talk as much as you maybe did 10 or so years ago no you're right I don't get to talk about it as much I think I I, I take the opportunity take these opportunities because I like talking about the glory days I think any athlete or, or Olympian does it's you know it's the the highlight of our career and it's a you know a void that's very very hard to fill later in life so I think it's it's lovely that people still find it interesting or still want to want to talk about the good old days but uh it, it's it's always a it always warms my heart and um 
very, very happy to be here and chat about it. I, I love sort of reading some of your uh, past interviews where you likened snowboarding in the 90s and early 2000s almost being part of the Jamaican bobsled team sort of a, where <laughs> the, the sport was in, in Australia at that time. So, I mean, did you watch Cool Runnings once and then go, hey, I want to snowboard? Is that kind of what drew you into the sport? I mean, how do you get involved in snowboarding? Uh, I'm not sure, but maybe my dad did. Um, <laughs> no, my, my dad took up snowboarding in the 80s uh, when it first came to Australia. He was a mad skier and um, he heard about snowboarding and a mate of his had tried it, so he took up snowboarding and, and loved it. And then for my 12th birthday, I got a secondhand little Kemper baby snowboard and um the rest was kind of history it just I was sort of always the son that my my dad never had so it kind of became our thing that we we did together and um I skied as a kid too but I you know used to crack tantrums at ski school it wasn't really my my thing and and then I I found snowboarding and I just I loved it I absolutely loved it and it became my, my passion from from there on I think into in my teens probably what kept me on the straight and narrow to be fair through my teens. That's always, that's always a good thing which it's, it's always fascinating yeah. to think when you think about snowboarding that it's really not that old of a sport I mean you mentioned your dad sort of discovering it in the 80s one of the other shows that I do this is a tangent but it comes back to this Steph don't worry is is on James Bond and there was one of the Bond movies <laughs> in the 80s A View to a Kill James Bond famously snowboards and at that point snowboarding was very fresh so it was kind of considered a groundbreaking moment that James Bond is snowboarding so it's really a sport that's what 30, 40 years old, which I don't think some people probably realise out there given how big it is today. I literally just had the same conversation with my dad about that James Bond movie on the weekend because <laughs> he he was at a charity ball and the theme was James Bond and they were playing all of those those scenes nice. from the old snow 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 movies. So, um, wow. yeah, you're right. It's a very new sport, um, so something I was, you know, very proud to be a part of. But, you know, it came with its challenges early on as an, as an athlete, uh, especially coming out of Australia and especially being female. There just wasn't a great deal of support or funding or anything available to us back in the day. But, um, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't take back anything now. It was sort of the best sort of 10, 15 years of my life. Were you growing up sporty in other pursuits? Were you a typical kid playing all different types of sports? And was this with the intention that you wanted to grow up to be a professional athlete at that point? It's funny you should ask, and I, I, you know, a lot of maybe it's an Australian mentality, but a lot of people say, if, you know, you don't grow up thinking you're going to be on the podium, then you know, what, what kind of Olympian are you? I, I, I truthfully didn't grow up wanting to wear the green and gold. I always watched the Olympics as a kid. I was very inspired by it, but I was not a naturally gifted athlete um, by no means. To the to the to this day, my coach still jokes about the fact I have no hand-eye coordination. Like you would, ne- if you threw a, a ball at me, you would not believe I was a professional athlete for f- 15 years of my life. It's embarrassing. But um, I, I just happened to have a lot of, uh, uh, I guess, uh, I'm good from the waist down, speed and speed and agility. Um, I'm very short, close to the ground, and um, I was a, a ballerina and dancer for 15 years, and I think that's wow. what sort of helped me athletically do really well in my sport but um but but no not naturally an athlete but but very naturally competitive um so you know I was always sports captain in school and I always loved being involved in sports but even though I was not naturally good at many of them but then when I found snowboarding I think something just something just clicked and um it's when I was yeah when I was about 12 years old and I, I, t- I think I took it up when I was about 11, sorry, or 12. And um, I think that's when it was my dad that was like, oh, I think there's there's something a little bit more here than, than we know. 
Um, but yeah, I, you know, I, I, action sports are my thing. So I, I, I have a bit of white line fever and I think it was a very good outlet for that for, for a long time. So if my maths are correct, not wanting to reveal your age on the show today, Steph, but <laughs> around about that age, if you're taking up snowboarding would have been around 98 Nagano Olympics when snowboarding debuted. So was this something that when you're starting and you're kind of seeing it at the Olympics, that maybe it did light a, a bit of a, a flame for yourself to think, well, this could be a possibility? I think subconsciously maybe. And I was, you know, very invested in a big part of the, the race club at our local mountain at Mount Buller. And I, I started competing overseas when I was about 16. So quite, quite early on. Um, and I started out doing PGS racing. So that's, I, you know, that was how most of us started out back in the day and learned, you know, edge control and learned speed and learned, you know, um, uh, you know, direction and, and how to actually hold an edge properly and turn. So I did that for a long time, but I, I couldn't compete against the Europeans and, and the Americans overseas. But then border cross sort of transitioned its way from sort of uh, action sports and X Games and uh, into commercial sports. And I think that's when I found my crossover because I was I was I was pretty good at freestyle, but not good enough to be a freestyler. Um, and I was a very good racer. So when border cross you know, and sort of GS combined, it was kind of, I found my event and there was rumours that it was going to become an Olympic event. So uh, I was lucky enough to be be part of that debut. Because it initially at Nagano, it was, it was Giant Slalom and, and Halfpipe were sort of the original ones. And then ultimately Correct. you add border cross, things like slope style, big air, all that sort of stuff gets the additions there. So, I mean, even in those early days of snowboard, it was either do the half pipe or do the slalom essentially wasn't it so it was kind of not much of a choice if you wanted to go to the olympics in snowboarding exactly right and um there was an assumption that you could be good at slalom and and gs which then became the pgs later on which was more of an ex, you know slightly more exciting event um but not always a direct crossover to half pipe by no means so i think the border cross was the the perfect the perfect in-betweener um you know for, for those of us that just couldn't quite find our feet in one or the other so making and certainly you, it was mine, yeah. <laughs> so making your way through the ranks then, and kind of uh, going through, you know, national championships, heading overseas, and everything along those lines, with it making its debut in Turin, was there any chance of you qualifying for for those games? Was that a goal, or did you firmly set your sights on twenty ten when you sort of were progressing your way up the ranks? If I'm if I'm being completely honest, I was still finishing high school at the time or, or just finishing high school. So I think my goals were very much, and, and that's probably a big part of my family's influence too, was getting through school and, and finishing. Um, and then, you know, going on to university, like everyone does, or like you're meant to do, I guess. Um, but I, I qualified based on my uh, yeah, in 2006, wasn't it? Yeah. 2006, I actually qualified based on my, uh, some of my results in the lead up and I had the right amount of points. So I wasn't expecting to by no means to go to the Olympics. I hadn't even had a world cup start, but my points were so good that wow. I, I, I could almost qualify for the Olympics. So I think for me, that was when I really realized that, that I, I, to be fair, I probably hadn't backed my own talent up until that moment. Um, maybe a few other people had, believed in me as in coach wise, family wise, team wise, but I probably didn't understand my potential until I got that, that sort of um, 
early qualification. I then did not qualify for the for the games because then when I got my World Cup start, I, I shit the bed essentially that season. I was young and inexperienced and jumped straight on the World Cup tour of the year before the Olympics in Torino and I wasn't ready. So it was it was not until that sort of happened that I then I'd sort of dedicated the next four years of my life to, to qualifying for, for 2010 and, and everything changed for me from then on. It was, you know, physical, physically, mentally, you know, emotionally, psychologically is when everything shifted. It's, it became my mission. It became my, my goal in life. I became a lot more open about talking about what I was trying to achieve. Whereas prior to that, I, I, I did, I didn't have that mindset. So, and I, and I really had to train physically uh, hard to be able to make it at that level. I'm, I'm tiny, uh, for my, my sport. I'm tiny in general, <laughs> not, I'm not, <laughs> I'm not a very big unit in life in general. So the fact that I did border cross as an event is hilarious. Like most of the girls I competed against look like they eat about 75 wheat bix for breakfast. Like <laughs> I'm tiny. So I had to physically get, you know, gain weight and, um, and, and, and muscle and and train a lot harder than a lot of the other girls I think plus I'm coming from Australia we're, we're lucky if we get two three months of the year on snow so I did 11 back-to-back winters uh you know in the lead up to to Vancouver and I had no summers and you know I, I everything became a big shift for me I felt a, I think I felt a huge you know deal of responsibility as well because I hadn't made 2006 it was a huge sacrifice for my, my not only myself but my family and and a lot of people were sort of backing me and believing in me so I, I I had a lot I thought I had a lot to achieve you know in that in that four or five years in the lead up to Vancouver so I you know had to put everything on the line that's crazy to think the amount of effort that that would take to build up that muscle and everything because I mean I spent my entire life basically, Seth, trying to go to the gym to lose weight. Um, I've never <laughs> thought about doing the the opposite. So, uh, oh, no. I mean, that that that's crazy to think. I mean, what? Where do you even start? Like, do you have to speak to like a a trainer, like a physio, and go like, how do I how do I do this? How do I get my body bigger to compete with these girls on the world stage? You can imagine the conversations because I now work in health and fitness with women who, when I tell them I had to actually put on weight, they're like, "Sorry, I don't think you're the, I don't yeah, think what? you're the right trainer for me." Yeah, um, but look, I'm talking about like muscle mass weight. Yeah. You know, I um, I, I was I was very small. And like I said, I came came from like a balletic background, so I, I you know, nat- naturally. Um, athletic but not not very big so I, I had to put on a, lo- a lot of muscle tone so I had to change my diet and I had to change what I was doing physically um lifting in the gym um so and and you have to find that right balance too because border cross is really a mix of speed and agility and uh endurance you know you have to be quick you have to get the best time you have to get down um you know, the, the bumps and the jumps that are the obstacle course that make up border cross, but then you have to go around and do it all over again. And then if you get through that final, you have to go around and do it all again. So then it becomes an endurance sport as well. So you can't put on too much weight because then you're not, you know, you're not fit enough um, endurance wise to go back around and do lap after lap after lap. So it was a, it was a, a fine line um, of finding, you know, where, where to be your, you you know, your best self and your, your athletic best to compete in, in a very young sport that was border cross. So it's a lot of trial and error. And is it also a case of, and a lot of balls to be fair, like at the end of the day, you get to have a big set of balls and a a really good mindset because the, the rest was all a bit trial and error to be fair. 
which in the and the mental side of things, you sort of mentioned about how it sort of kept you on the straight and narrow growing up, you know, in, in your teenage years. But I mean, mentally, the disappointment of of not qualifying for for Turin. I mean, do you then work with sports psychologists? Did you have sort of certain ways that you would deal with the mental aspect while you were going to the gym and building up that muscle as well? Look, it's a great question. It's not something I had access to back then. Um, you know, I was in, employing my own strength and conditioning coach. I, I didn't get into the Institute of Sport nor have access to a, a mental coach or sports psychology until after the Olympics, to be fair. Wow. So um, I, I never, I actually ne- never spoke to a sports psychologist until, until after the Olympics, which is ironic. And it was more so to deal with, uh, you know, leaving sport and injury later on in my career. Um, so early on, I think that's something that I probably took for granted. I think naturally, like I said, I wasn't a natural athlete. I mean, if I was, you know, if they were try- looking for athletes for this sport today, I definitely would not be chosen based on my athletic ability, but mentally I probably would. Um, it's just, I, th- I think I learned early on, I had some very good coaches, some very, very strict um, German and Austrian coaches early on in my career that, you know, taught me I had to be very, very strong in my head. Otherwise I'd never make it um, in sport and I'd, and I'd never make it in a sport that, you know, Australians are naturally not, not gifted at. So, you know, I, I think I was, I think I was always training my, my brain as much as my body to be fair from a very early age. It seems like a very uniquely winter sport thing that happens for for Australian athletes as well. I remember reading uh, David Morris's autobiography and a lot of his journey was about not being supported by the Institute of Sport, that he basically had to do a lot of it himself because the mm-hmm. support for the men's aerials just wasn't existent for a long period of time there in Australia. And that was amazing to think what he overcame. And we even spoke with Adam Lambert recently and he was sort of talking about how for a large portion of when he was making teams, he actually technically wasn't on the Australian team. He was on the, it's, it's fascinating to kind of hear those journeys, which, I mean, is that improving from what you know of kind of now with success from winter sports, or is it still kind of a situation in certain winter sports? You kind of are fighting this still to this day. I think it's going to, it's going to stay a fight, unfortunately, for, uh, for a lot of up and coming athletes. I think we've got a lot of work to do in the grassroots sort of area of, of winter sports in Australia. That's for sure. That's where it's not, I don't think there's not enough support and funding. Uh, so, you know, you really have to fight your way to the top and unless you're getting some results and you're knocking on that door pretty hard, then, uh, you know, Australia aren't really listening or interested and until a bit later on in your, in your career. Uh, so I think it's common for most of us, but it's also, I think, what made a lot of us great athletes, you know, the fact that I was, that I didn't qualify for for um, 2006 is probably what gave me the kick up the ass that I needed to go and give it my all for Vancouver. Uh, and then I was told I wasn't going to qualify for Vancouver. I was the only female that qualified for the 2010 Olympics. So there was no funding allocated for a female in border cross. Um, you know, so it wasn't until I was sort of handed that green and gold jacket that I really believed it to be fair, you know, and then you'd have to shake the hands of all the people that told you you wouldn't qualify. So, you know, but if anything, it just lights a fire in your ass, I think. And, and for me, I'm, I'm that kind of person. You tell me I can't do something and I'll go and do it. So that's probably part of my mentality. And it's probably why I worked well with a lot of those stricter coaches earlier on in my career. And, you know, those European coaches that would, would push me. So, and if, if anything, it's probably what made me a good athlete early on in my career, but uh, you don't know that at the time, you know, you're just, you're just in it. You can't see the, can't see the, 
put amongst the trees and you're just fighting. So, um, but I, I know that now, you know, <laughs> and like you said, I've done a lot more sports psychology these days to understand it, <laughs> to understand it all. <laughs> but, Which, but back then you're just fighting and you're relying a lot on your, you know, your physical and your, and your mental talent really. Which I can imagine sort of, I mean, obviously we'll get to what you're up to now sort of a little bit after, but like helps you in that side of things. But do you also kind of like using your journey and all the things that you overcame to help maybe mentor some of these younger athletes who are going to have to face similar things? Is that something that you've done or you you look at doing maybe with people coming through that progression as well? Yeah, it's something I've done um uh, quite a bit of in, in uh, lots of different sports. I mean, it doesn't just exist. Something I think that I learned going to the Olympics was that it's, you're never alone. And it's, it's a very common story and it's happened to a lot of athletes in a lot of different sports. Um, and obviously doing the work that we've done and how we met through a lot of the, the commentary work, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's right through summer sports, winter sports, no matter, no matter where you go, everyone's got a bit of a story. So, um, you know, I'll, I'll always put my hand up to help any other young athlete that that might be struggling with it um but but also you know my, my message still remains the same is you just have to focus on the training and, and focus on on the race itself you know you're only as good as your last race and uh it's anyone's game on the day really so at, at the end of the day a big part I think of the work that I do now is sort of translating a lot of those um skills that I learned in sport especially mentally is you know, how we can use them in everyday life. And, and it is being, it is a big part of being able to switch out, switch off what's going on around you and being able to still, you know, keep your focus and keep your, you know, eye on the prize somewhat. So yeah, it's, look, I've, I've moved away. Uh, my, my way of giving back in the sport these days is, is, is through the commentary. And I obviously still have a lot of friends and a lot of um, Australian athletes competing uh, and a lot of not just Australians, sorry, friends around the world that are still very involved in the sport. So I, I love being able to tap in and out every four years. It gives me life and, and it, you know, it fills my cup up <laughs> again. Um, but my my focus has very much moved into sort of that that um, mental and physical well-being space these days. But because of that, I've had a lot of athletes circle through my business. So it's funny how, how it all works. Yeah, mm. it kind of comes, comes full circle with that. It does. Thing- it really does. One thing in the lead up, and obviously we'll talk what happened after the Olympics, but uh, a few injuries in the lead up, obviously brought across, uh, can can lead to that a uh, bit of a dangerous sport. It's not at a times. it's not a kind sport on the no, body. No, no, it's it's not <laughs> curling, or you know, I think we established that curling's like the the most safe sport at a Winter Olympics, isn't it? Everything else, you generally get broken bones. But I believe you had a, a few dislocated ribs, uh, a torn medial collateral ligament, and even some memory loss after a concussion. I mean. Again, like uh, everything you talk about is coming. Uh, well, oh, your Wikipedia page is clearly up to date. Uh, I think that it comes. <laughs> does it come down to <laughs> the fact that pushing through all those injuries, just adding to everything you're doing, when you get that jacket like you mentioned, like handed to you, I mean, that must add a bit of extra, you know, gold on the green and gold, basically, that you turn around and you've made it that far to get to those Olympics. Yeah, well said. Yeah, well said. The um the head injury was literally a few weeks out prior to qualifying for Vancouver, so that was a massive setback. And I I just I you know it I didn't really um you know have have a race to lose at that point in terms of qualifying. Um, so the you know the head injury was a real setback in the in the lead up. Um, but again, it probably gave me a little bit of extra grunt, but. I mean, I think what, and probably people talk about it on on your show a lot, is that 
you it's there's four years between every Olympics, but you literally find out if you've qualified or not weeks before the games. So I, I think you know in the lead up, of course, you know your own results. I mean, we track our own points and our our results ourselves because we're nuts. Um, so we we all know we all know where we're ranked and where we sit. But still, it's still there's um, you know it still comes down to the country's discretion. It still comes down to quota spots in the lead up to the Olympics. So it, it anything can happen. So there's there's you can have all the points in the world and have had you know and won every event and most likely you'll go through. But uh, winter sports, especially in action sports, are not that consistent. So you, 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 it's it's a lot harder to track. Um, so yes, the relief I can say in the lead up, and when I received that letter, you get it. You literally get a letter in the mail. You can ask. It's like when you get your VCE results. They ask you if you want it printed. Do you want it sent to you? Do you want to be called? How would you like to find out? You know. Um, so I said, oh, all of it. Like I'll just take everything. Thanks. I don't care how I find out. I just want to know. But I've still got that letter framed at home. So if I am having a, a tough day, I, I look back at that letter. Sometimes and I go, if I can achieve that at, you know, yeah. 22, 23 years of age, I can, I can do anything. So, which um, is, yeah, um, it was relief. <laughs> it's uh, look again, as a 35 year old, I think my time might've gone, although I, you never know, I could still qualify for some form of Olympics. Andrew Hoy was what in his 60s. So I just need to learn how to ride a horse and I'll be set. <laughs> but like, it's, it's <laughs> never it say one, never, never say never. But it, I mean, it is one of those moments that I just can imagine is just not you can't describe it because we, I always love finding out from our guests, like at what moment do they realize they're an Olympian? You know, is it the moment you get the letter, the moment you walk into the opening ceremony, when you cross the finish line, things like that. But that in itself, as again, of everything that you've been through to that point, narrowly missing out in Turin, like, I mean, I can see why you've got it framed as sort of an inspirational thing to sort of look back at. That's incredible. Yeah, I think when you're surrounded by a lot of doubt too, a lot of doubt and fear, it, it's hard not to pick up on that. So in my mind, I was always going to Vancouver. I, I saw myself competing in Vancouver. I always knew I was going. The minute I made the decision after uh, Torino to give that four years of my life, I knew I was going to Vancouver. Um, I had some bad results. I, like I said, I had the head injury. I blew my knee. I had, you know, in the lead up, I I, I gave people good reason to doubt <laughs> the uh, the journey as well. And I, I'm I'm probably more of the kind of person that when there's there's you know storm and chaos around me, I'm I'm quite calm. I go the opposite way. But my family are the opposite of that. So <laughs> when things get uh, quite stressful, they don't really control themselves very well. So the. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> nor did wow. I have a lot of support, you know, support from the team at the time. And and snowboarding was a young sport, so a lot of my friends didn't understand it. It's only now like, I've commentated at three Olympics since, and it, this year, twenty twenty two, people were like, oh, "I just I never knew that was the sport you actually did." Like I just wow. never twelve got years it. later. So it's like wow. you know, it's like oh, thanks guys. <laughs> that's crazy. But I, that's how young the sport was back then. You know, people are really only getting the awareness, you know, now. Which, I mean, so many things to come from that because, I mean, I think of some of the greats of Australian Winter Olympics, Tora Bright. I mean, I know it's a different, uh, you know, type of snowboarding, but still uh, snowboarding, obviously, there. Lindsay Jacobellis uh, put the sport on the map for a bit of a, an odd reason back in 2006 and ultimately got a mm -hmm. redemption this year. But, I mean, it's it's fascinating. I've never wept, to, I've never wept so much. For, crying, yeah, which, I mean, God, to get away with two gold as moment. well. Like, you know, yeah. just to, to completely redeem yourself. Absolutely incredible. But um, it's it's fascinating to think that they still, it took them this long to go, oh, oh, that's what you did. Okay, cool. <laughs> oh, 
That makes sense now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah, I can see why. Yeah, which which is which is fascinating. But I mean, you got to go to a great Olympics, obviously Vancouver. I mean, great city, great uh, Olympics in general. I mean, had you competed and been to to Vancouver many times before that, or was that kind of like first time there and just experiencing all of that during your Olympics? I feel very grateful to have gone to Vancouver. It was, like you said, a great city to be in. Uh, We had a lot of support because there's so many Australian expats obviously based in uh, Vancouver and in Whistler, which just made for, uh, you know, such an exciting event. I mean, like I said, it's a very new sport, so we didn't have a great deal of support and and a lot of our events were not run at commercial uh, ski resorts like Whistler. You know, they're run at small, tiny uh, resorts that need the the funding, to be fair, and, you know, get the funding from from FIS and and from the International Ski Committee to get, or Snow Committee, to, to, to put some money back into the resorts. So a lot of the time they're in very small resorts and uh, not... You know, you're not seeing what we saw in in Vancouver and in, and in Whistler, but um, I had done a lot of training out of Whistler before. I'd done a lot of training in Canada, especially. So um, I'd, I'd actually been Canadian national champion a couple of times uh, and based myself out of uh, Silver Star and based myself out of uh, Big White. Sorry for years. So it was a good little stomping ground for me for, for a while there. And early on, I mean, later in my career, I spent a lot of time in Europe. But early on, when when border cross was first becoming uh, an event, we would share space with the parks. And, you know, America was and Canada were really the only place that had freestyle parks back then. Wow. Which, I mean, I was going to mention, I'm glad you brought up the Canadian National Champion because you're five-time Australian champion, but you also, I believe, got French, German and Canadian National (laughs) Champion. So they led Australians in to win their national championships. You can do that? And they don't like it. I can tell you. I can imagine. I can tell, I can tell you. When I, when, I, when I won the German German championships, they gave the medal to the German and they gave me a case of beer. It's still one of my favourite memories. <laughs> I mean, a weird I way you probably take it. that. Exactly. Wasn't, you know? My team was thrilled. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, you can't drink a medal. So as, You can't drink as, a medal. That is yeah. true. Which, I mean. That, that is true. Is, is that still the case? Can an Australian still go and win the German championships or has it changed the more the sport has grown? No, absolutely. It's like it, it's it's like a lot of the internationals now will fly to Australia or New Zealand, uh, which never used to happen. But now it, to to gain points in the in the in the southern winter. Wow. Um, so we were doing the same. You know, that's why we were flying north. Um, in, sorry, in the northern winters to get our points up. So a lot of the teams are now doing the same, especially when you're a junior. Um, it's a great way to get to get your points up when you can't make a World Cup start. So you have to have a certain amount of points to get a World Cup start. So in order to do that, you need to compete at, at, at numerous amounts of events. So the best way to do that is on a NORAM um, circuit or on a European um, Cup circuit. Um, and, you, you know, so essentially my coach used to say, if you're not winning uh, in America and Canada and you're not top three in Europe, then you shouldn't be on the World Cup anyway. Wow. So that was always my goal. And I never, I got second in Austria, so I never got the European title, which I'm still burns me to this day. Wow. I was so close and I, and I, and I, I fell, I fell on the, in the finals (laughs) and it's, it's still, it's still, I I saw my coach, I saw my coach cry that day. It it still burns, still burns me. So the European title is the one I, the one I missed, but second overall in Europe, but yeah, never, never got that, never got that, never got to drink out of that cup, unfortunately. Never got got like a whole, like, you know, truck of beer. I can imagine that you get, you know, a a case of beer that you get for Germany. Exactly right. You get all the beer, basically. Exactly right. Exactly right. (laughs) 
the Europeans that. The Europeans know how to how to celebrate a win. That's for sure. <laughs> I always uh, love one of my my favorite stories on this show. It's See, no one's that. doing that for you in health and wellness these days. No, exactly, you know? exactly. <laughs> you know, they should. There should be more of that there. But uh, I remember Greta Small telling the story about winning an event. She got like a, a case of chupa chups. So um, I think kind of we need to look at Europe for their prizes. Uh, you know, in in winter sports, like what are we doing in Australia? What are you getting for winning the national championship in Australia, Steph? What do you get? It's a, it's a very good question <laughs> and it's <laughs> I think it's a medal or a cup. Yeah. So, no, wow. I'm, I need to talk to the event organisers, you obviously. You've got some, yeah. you, they owe you five lots of great, uh, you know. I, w- I will get back into the sport now. You're right. I yeah, should go exactly. back in there. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm sure I'm sure your back's fine now. It's all right. Like, you know, it's uh, <laughs> it, it, it's been a while. It, it, it's healed. I always love hearing about sort of, the experience of an Olympics, you know, do you do you make the most of, say, village life, uh, you know, going to see other events, bumping shoulders with, you know, athletes that are out there uh, that you're never really going to get to see? Because as we always say with winter athletes, an Olympics is really your only chance for a multi-sport event. You don't get to do a Commonwealth Games or something like that where you get to experience that. So how was all that experience oh, outside of the competing? Well, it's it's a great question because it's, we were actually removed from the village. The Australian team was taken out of the village at at the 2010 Olympics. So uh, when I, I got there early because it was my Olympic debut, I was you know I had a few good coaches and mentors that said, look, it can be very overwhelming. So better to get there early and sort of get all the excitement and the overwhelm done done early on, uh, which it is. Like turning up to the Olympic Village is like turning up to like. Disneyland for athletes. It's like the vending machines are free. There's live music happening. You're seeing all these athletes that you've, you know, admired your entire life walking around in their track suits, you know, like the gym is on heat there. There's it's, I can't really explain it. You know, the food court, like, you know, that's open 24 seven. So yeah, it's like Disneyland or like Vegas, if you will. It's a, it's a a very strange environment and definitely not um, like, conducive to health and well-being and about to compete in you know your biggest event in in your life or in your career because so, it because it's nothing like what you've prepared for you know we're used to being in these tiny little hostels and hotel rooms with you know the sound of your own inner thoughts really and then you get to the olympics and it's it's like being on speed so uh, we were taken out of the village and they they rented homes they like rental homes in Vancouver, not far from the Olympic Village, not far from where we were competing, and then filled the house with photo frames um, of like pictures of Australia and our families and Australian flags and put like Vegemite in the pantries. And they had Australian chefs to cook us like Australian food wow. to make us feel more like we we're at home. And I have to say, it made a massive difference. Um, it was a really, really great initiative by the Australian team. Um, and, and yeah, it made, it made a big difference, but I'm glad I got to experience the village, um, for, for a few nights. And, um, if you, if you had Brittany Cox on the show. Yeah, absolutely. We had her on a couple yeah. of times actually. Yeah. yeah. Britt, um, was my roommate. So, you know, 15 it was like, back then, wasn't she? She was only a little baby. Yeah. I thought I was small. Like, and yeah. then, and then <laughs> Brittany Cox turns up as my roommate. I'm like, are you kidding? I'm like, this wow. is amazing. And, and her and I have had a, you know, great friendship ever since. So um, Scotty James was also, um, yeah. you know, 
rooming next to me and you know so it was and and obviously Tora and I um I, I hadn't been to an Olympics before but she had so you know it was really a lot of the OGs back then and it was I, I for that camaraderie I'm, I'm grateful because you wouldn't have got that otherwise and it's a very individual sport what we all do so we don't get a lot of time with a team if you will so um uh, you know unless we were like I said in the Olympic Village or walking out at the opening ceremony that was really the only real time we all spent together and then uh otherwise we were we were put up in that in the houses so a, a funny experience but but one I'll one I'll never forget I've got to ask the question though, Steph, uh, 2010 peak Dale Begg Smith period in life. Did you get to uh, rub shoulders <laughs> with the man, the myth, the legend a little bit, Mr. Mr. Begg Smith? I, I did indeed. And he, he is a myth, um, but he's a, <laughs> but he is a legend. He is a legend. Um, we, we actually ate a few meals together. Um, oh. What does he eat? In, what does Dale Begg Smith in, eat? Can you reveal today in, on the show? Do you know what? I could not tell you because I think we're also in our own tunnel vision. But what I will tell you is he was very, very kind um, because the team van forgot to pick me up one day. This is at the oh, Olympics. Wow. And he gave he gave me his van because he had his oh, own. And wow. he got he and he got me Owned and he it, right? and he got me he got me home one night. Yeah. Oh, so I was very because we we all, we all had to meet at a team house for our meals. And then we would go back and, and sleep at our own team houses. So that was sort of my my one encounter with with the man, the myth, the legend that is Dale Big Smith. So it was very Which, kind of him. And I then beyond that, after that. he won his gold medal, no one saw him. No, Never to be seen goes, or heard goes from back to ever his again. Private, I, I think it was Sochi, wasn't it, where literally I think he basically contacted the AOC like a month before and was like, yeah, all right, I'll compete again. Like, I mean, it's just like, it's just, that's what he does. And I don't think he's been heard of since Sochi, to be honest. He texted, um, what's his name after Beijing to say good job in the, in the moguls final. But, um, I think that was the only time anybody's heard anything about him in the last uh, eight years, which is incredible. Yeah. Quite upset I haven't had an invite to the island, to be fair. Right, I know. We, we, yeah, every so time we, we get Brit on, we ask her about it. Like, Brit, come on, you've got to know, right? But, I mean, this is Australia's equal greatest Winter Olympian alongside Tora Bright, and yet, you know, he's just he's off on an island somewhere, counting his millions. Why not? P- part of me admires that about him, though, because he was so just in his own world, but that's, I think, what made him, what made him a great athlete. So, yeah. Part of me is like I, I don't think he felt he owed anyone anything, and he he didn't he definitely didn't want to bask in the glory of his win. It's not his style. So he yeah. literally got his medal and disappeared. That was it. He, no celebrations. Never saw him at the team house again. No one could even high five him. It was odd. It's so odd. Which it's also fascinating though that no matter who you ask about him, they've got nothing but positive things to say about him. I mean, what Britta said about him, just, you know, just amazing, you know, kindness and stories and what he's also done for the the sport of freestyle skiing in Australia since that gold medal in, and then the silver. Like, it, it's for such an enigma. He's done so much but really doesn't really ask for much in return. He just does his thing and he's like Superman, comes in, saves the day and goes back to Krypton. That's it. He's the introverted enigma. That's yep. it. That's, yep. that's that's who Dale is. It's you got to love that about him. Oh, indeed. I, I, he'd probably come back for, for Milan. He would just be like, oh, 20 years since I won gold. Let's give this another crack. Why not? You know? <laughs> like in I Italy would, as well? Like, come on. I would love to see that. 
Oh, he's still young. He's what, you know, not that old. So I think he's got another one in him. So come on, Dale. You're probably listening eventually somewhere. The the thing I find fascinating about If you're about out border- there, Dale, if you're out there, come on. Oh, if you need, he's our, he's if our you number one with an, a bullet, our number one dream guest. So, uh, you know, just, just saying that, Dale. The the interesting thing with Border Cross uh, in Vancouver. So if I'm not mistaken, this was the last time that there was – direct qualifying into the knockout. So now it's sort of seeded rounds, is it not, uh, to go into the knockout rounds, whereas back in Vancouver you actually were qualifying for the the knockout rounds. Is is, is that correct? No, we still qualify, so there's def- definitely still a qualifying round. But what has changed is that there's – so Vancouver I think was the last time there was four competitors on the course at a time, then it went to six, and now it's gone back to four. Um, because it's too dangerous. Um, so that has shifted. But we, we, uh, they, they've just changed the qualifying. You, you still have to qualify, sorry, so the girls still have to qualify in the top uh, 16 and the right. men still have to qualify in the top 34, 32, sorry, 32. Um, but they have changed the second round of seeding. Whereas you used to have to do two qualifying runs and you take the best of the of the two, right. um, whereas whereas now you you need to get a sort of safety run in, which is kind of like so we saw that in Beijing, didn't we? What was like the top for the men, like top sixteen in the first round, and then you've got to run again to to go through. So correct. So, I mean, the, the reason I bring that and then up they run, is, run it in reverse order. Yeah. Right. Right. I mean, I bring that up because obviously for you in Vancouver, it, it unfortunately didn't quite go to plan on that second run to uh, to get you through. I mean, going back to everything you're saying about how you got there, do you go in with a goal? Like, with you know, was the goal, I'm at the Olympics now, everything's a bonus, or do you still go in with, a, okay, no, I can, I can medal, I can get into a certain round, and obviously didn't quite go to plan, I can imagine, if you did set yourself a goal. Yeah, I think there's always a goal. I, I think at that point you can't get to that pinnacle of sport and not have a goal in mind. Um, but for me, and, and again, I think people get upset when I say this, it was never to podium, but I wasn't against a podium, if you know what I mean. So my, my best result coming into the games, like I, my, my best qualifying result was 12th in the world. So for me, I'd been trying to crack the top 10 in the world for, for quite a few years. So in that couple of years in the lead up to the games, for me, a top 10 in the world was, was my my best result. So, like I said, I'd podiumed at all the national level events, um, at, and um, had seeded well, and and sort of took me a really long time to break the top top twenty in the world. And then once you break the top twenty, it's you know top fifteen, and then it's about breaking that top ten. And so that sort of last part of my career was between that top ten and top fifteen in the world was where I sort of sat and where I really struggled. So I tried everything, like I said, from changing my weight to changing my equipment to changing the way I train to 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 break it and yeah 11th and 12th were my best results in the lead up so for me going into the games it was a top 10 result that's what I wanted I wanted a top 10 in the world at the olympics and 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 you know border cross is kind of like a stephen bradbury type situation once you're once you're in that top 10 15 in the world anything can fucking happen yeah, <laughs> so yeah. I, you know, you sort you sort of know you're in the mix and you know where you stand. And I a lot of these girls that were in the top ten that I, I could beat them in training, you know, but I didn't have the race experience that a lot of these top seated girls did have. And I think that's where I, I sort of struggled. And that's why I really would have loved to have got one more games in my belt. I just think if I had been able to go around one more time, I, I was probably a couple of years off being in that top five, ten in the world. 
um, realistically based on experience, based on everything I'd done in the lead up, like you said, to that point um, with, with a couple of setbacks along the way. But that's not creating excuses. That's just where I sat in my career. And, you know, my Ricca that won the Olympics that year, you know, she was in her early, early 30s. I was 23. 24 going into the game. So I was actually still quite young in our sport. Um, so, you know, for me, it was, it was all about that top 10 result. Uh, and then once I could get in that top 10 for, for me, I, I'm my worst enemy. So, uh, which is, I guess what we're about to speak about is the qualifying rounds is what used to bite me in the ass. I'm great in heats. I'm good under pressure. I'm strong in my head. And like I said, when I, I'm, I can be, uh, really, really good when I'm told I can't do something. So if one of the girls would get up at me in the gate or someone would be a bit feisty in the start section, like, uh, like it's fucking on for me. That's when I was really good. And that's when I got my best results. And that's how I did well in all of those other qualifiers was because on race day, I knew it was anyone's game. And I knew that if I could just get out in front in a heat, then I was a strong enough rider to hold my place. But it's the qualifying rounds that used to, that's where, you know, you, you'd have that internal voice in your head there. If, and if you didn't stay on your feet, that's where you could, you could really fuck it all up. So, um, and, and unfortunately, that's what undid me uh, at Vancouver. So in the first round of the games, um, again, I'm just painting a picture, by no means making excuses, but for those who don't follow, didn't follow Vancouver as closely as the rest of us, it had not snowed for three months in Vancouver, mm-hmm. in Canada, like which is unheard of. And they were bringing snow in, uh, in choppers. They were choppering in the snow from Whistler to um, the local mountain that we were competing at in Vancouver and sticking it on skate ramps. And and so they were combining man-made snow with natural snow and sticking it on, on ramps, you know, wooden ramps to create and build an obstacle course out of snow. But you can imagine you've been training for four years on natural snow and competing on natural snow. So to compete on something like that feels completely different under your feet. So your equipment feels different. Your wax is not the same. Your speed is completely off. Most of the boys in training um, had hurt themselves or were making complaints about not being uh, about coming up short on a lot of the features, meaning they were coming off jumps and not making the landings. And the boys are carrying a lot more weight and speed than we are, and we're comp- and the girls are competing on the exact same course. So, needless to say, it was a lot of um, a, a, a lot of challenges in the lead up. And normally we'd get two days, especially in an, an Olympic or World Cup event, you would always get two days of training on a, on a course because they're treacherous, they're a lot bigger, they're twice the size of a lot of the other courses. So they need to give you at least a day or two of training on the course before they let you compete on it. And obviously weather and everything else comes into play as well and, um, and can affect your performance on the day. So, um, and they cancelled the day of training before the day before the Olympics because wow. they wanted it to look good on TV for the games. And because all the riders were taking the snow away, it was, it, you know, it, it, looked, it looked terrible. So, um, yeah, they cancelled our day of training the day before the, the Olympics. So, you know, it sent a lot of us into a real tailspin. Um, so I had to have a very, uh, like I said, I had no sports psychologist back then, but I, I had a, a, a Danny Roach, the Australian uh, Olympic hockey player, was a huge mentor of mine and had worked with me in the lead up to the games. We'd met through mutual friends and she'd become, uh, you know, a, a, an absolute mentor to me in, in the lead up and helped me prepare. And I, ne- I never forget the phone call she made to me like the day before the Olympics going, gee, mate, 
doesn't look like there's much snow over there. <laughs> I was like, great observation, Danny. Yep. You know, and I was, I was, I, and, I, and I was, you know, I was not in my best headspace. And she just, she really, I think she talked me off a ledge. And and she was like, okay, so she's like, all right, so you're competing at the Olympics in 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 you know in 48 hours time. And she's like, well, what are you going to do? And I said, well, we can't do anything because we can't compete. And they've taken, we you know, they've cancelled the training and we're not even allowed to look at the course. We're, da, 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 you know, da, 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 I started reeling. And she just, yeah, like I said, just talked me out of it. And and she said, okay, so how many of you are unable to, to train on the course? I was like, well, all of us. And she was like, okay, so so all of you, none of you can 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 train. I said, no. And she said, how many of you are allowed to go look at the course? I said, none of us, none of us can go see the course. No, okay, okay, great. And and she said, how many times have you uh, run the course in your head mentally then since being told that you're not allowed to go look at it, go train on it today? And I was like, Ooh. and she was like, cool. So everyone's in the same position. Not everyone is exactly where you are right now. So your only advantage is mental and physical. So have you been to the gym today? Have you flushed out your legs? And how many times have you run the course in your head? Because she's like, I need you to run it at least 150 times between now and tomorrow. Because she's like, you and I both know that you can do the work in your head between now and then. And it was just like, it was just the the reframe that I needed because, you know, we were completely freaked out by the fact that some of us, because the first day of training was running so slowly, most of us had not run the full course. So we were coming, we were turning up to the Olympics, the biggest event of our lives, and most of us had not even run a full course. That's insane. That's absolutely. So anyway, insane. I, I, I digress. I digress, but yeah, it was. Um, so it was. It was pretty frightening. So like you said, you you kind of you, your goals don't go out the window, but um, you, you turn up in a slightly different headspace than, than than you than you expect, and a lot of injuries happened on the day. I saw that you know three of my my absolute heroes in the sport get taken off in stretches because you've got those big screens at the top of the course where you're seeing everything. And so, yeah, needless to say, I was a bit a bit shaken in my head. So I put in a safety run and I was sitting in 11th place after my first qualifying run. And I was like, fuck, I'm so close to that top 10. I can, I can almost taste it. But it was safety run. Like it was so safe. I was so shaky under my feet. And I got to the top and my coach just shook his head and was like, it's not good enough. And you, 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 you just, you're going to have to pull something out next time. Otherwise you're not going through today. It's just not going to happen. So I was like, fuck, okay. Um, and obviously we have to qualify top 16 places to go through to finals. So I was in 11th, pulled out for that second run. And it, it was running because, um, Obviously, the, the boys had then run it and now the girls were running it. It was running a little bit faster in the afternoon, thankfully, so I could finally feel, you know, a, a little bit more flow, a little bit more rhythm that I wasn't finding earlier in the day. And uh, I got about halfway down the course and I thought, fuck, it's now or never. I've got to let it go. So I started to, you know, take the brakes off a little bit um, and start to hammer a little bit more. And I thought, no, I feel good. I feel okay. And I was definitely coming around a lot of the turns and 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 the jumps a lot easier. And then there was just a, a technical feature about three features from the finish line where you sort of had to go, you had to choose whether you wanted to triple a feature or go or, or go over it one, two, three, if that makes sense, the best way to explain that verbally. But uh, you either pump the three features or you can just triple them and go over them. Anyway, I, I decided to go for the triple, even though I hadn't in training because I thought I had a lot more speed. And uh, I just came up a little bit short so then the last three features before the finish line, you can imagine I was just didn't quite have the speed because I'd come up short on that feature. And then I just, next thing I knew I was in the air and I was ragdolling and 
scarecrowing, whatever you'll call it, uh, and and put put in quite a spectacular um, crash. And um, it, it it actually went on to be the number nine highlight in um, the Olympic and Eurosports highlights of top ten crashes of the you Olympics. You made the top ten, then Steph. Well I done. Made the top ten. <laughs> you <laughs> did it. You made the top ten at the Olympics. So come on, take I that on board. <laughs> should have been a little more specific with my order when I put that one in. <laughs> my top ten result to be to be fair. To be fair, and they replayed it in slow motion. <clears throat> excuse me. That many times, it was horrendous. Which. I mean, with all of that, I, I can't even imagine how you're feeling at that point because for starters, with all that you've gone through, you've gotten to the Olympics, you've gotten that close and then that happens. <laughs> so obviously is that disappointment. But on the flip side of that, I can imagine that once the Olympics are over, it's mentally, well, four years to the next one. And obviously we can talk about what happened, you know, not that long afterwards, which prevented you from going to another Olympics. But how, how does that does that take a quick turnaround to sort of recover from that disappointment and focus in towards Sochi and what you, your next goal would have been at that point? Yeah, it was a, it was a um, very surreal time, I think. And I, 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 to be fair, I think years later I did the work mentally that was required, <coughs> excuse me, to recover from the, the disappointment that was that result. But um uh, I, I sort of went, I, I picked myself up out a few broken ribs, got to the finish line. And um, like I said, you still need to make the top 16. So I got down and I was still sitting in 14th place, even with my crash. And then I just watched myself go 15th, 16th, 17th. And I'm, I think it was like point. It was so close. Like it was, it was so close. I missed out by like that much. And I think that's what hurt me was just that, it wouldn't have taken much and maybe, you know, you, you replay that run in your head so many times of maybe I shouldn't have taken the gas off so soon or maybe I should have done this or, you know, if I had have taken a higher line here and there. So you play that game with yourself for a really long time and it's a very dangerous space to sit in. So I think I sort of switched it off because at the time, because the Olympics sit in the middle of the season. So I still had the season to finish out. And for me, I still wanted that top 10 result and we had World Cup finals coming up. So I, I, I sort of thought, you know, you're only as good as your last race and I'm just going to put it out of my head. I took a couple of weeks off because I'd obviously I had a couple of broken ribs and then well, we had World Cup finals. And my coach had said to me that I was probably a bit burnt out. I probably shouldn't go to World Cup finals. I was pretty, I was pretty beat. I know, four years in the lead up to the games to not get the result you want. Like mentally, physically, you're, you're not in your best place. But I was still pretty driven. Um and I think, you know, a big lesson for all of us, and I, I do speak a lot about this and I when I do a lot of speaking events or motivational speaking events, I think when we set out to do things not for ourselves or to prove something to others, we're, we're never going to get the best result, right? And I think at that point I stopped competing for myself. I, You know, I was, I was out to prove that I could get that top 10 result and it became about showing everyone that it was so disappointed in me from my Olympic result and, you know, the Australian team and everyone else that I could, I could still compete and I could do what I was capable of doing, but I, I lost the spark and I lost the enjoyment, you know, I wasn't doing it for me anymore. I was just, I was out to prove something. So I, I still think that's what led to the events that, that then became of me at the world cup finals, which, which I can I'll, laugh about now, but they're not funny. Yeah. Well, I mean, what happened a couple of months later, the accident, uh, the, the injuries essentially 
ended your your athletic career at that point, didn't it? I mean, the crash that you had, I mean, reading here, uh, compressed the L4 and L5 vertebrae in your spine. You had nerve damage, broke five ribs, subluxed your hip, did damage to your pelvis, tore your hamstring, had a hematoma, several spinal... I mean, it literally sounds like you were, like, just broken everywhere. I mean, it just sounds absolutely horrific, which, I mean, how do you get to a point after that that you've you've worked so hard for so long to get to a point where you are competing at the highest level and it's taken away from you an instant how, how can you possibly recover from that and and do what you're doing now and kind of as you said almost basically laugh about it now 12 years later yeah i mean look i, I probably shouldn't laugh about it that probably comes from a place of of having to deal with a really bad injury for a long time um you know, I, I think, and there was a lot of PTSD involved, I think coming off a 60 foot jump short, like metres and metres short of where you should land. And essentially, like you said, breaking the left side of my my body, sort of, you know, my physiotherapist explains it, or, you know, or describes it, I should say, is like the equivalent of falling out of a first floor building to concrete. Wow. Or that of like the impact of a really bad car accident. <clears throat> so yeah, like you said, I think the, the fractured and compressed vertebrae in my in the lower part of my spine is what's given which is what created a lot of uh, damage and and it's sort of I guess the work I've had to do, not just physically but I think mentally to come back from that injury uh, and and the pain management. What I had to learn about pain management at a very young age was. Um, was pretty frightening and I still deal with a lot of the whiplash um, from the injury to this day. So I, I still I suffer from a lot of nerve nerve pain and I still have, um, you know, pretty severe whiplash, which I think comes from that concussion and comes from that hand injury and, and, and the whiplash of the accident at the time. So, yeah, it was, you know, it was horrific at the time and um, obviously um, excruciating, but, you know, a, a big part of I think the comeback for me was, thinking I could go back and compete again, which is crazy, which says a lot about my own mental my, um, mindset, but it's what helped me get out of bed every day. It's what helped me do the rehab because I really thought I was going to make it back for Sochi. I'd never had such a bad injury before. Um, you know, like you said, I'd had knee injuries, I'd had ankle injuries, I'd had head injuries, I had 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 done my fair share of injuries, but most of them you're given a timeline. Most of them they're like, okay, if you do six to eight weeks of therapy here and then you do this and this, you'll be back. Or if you spend a couple of months treating this or strengthening that, you'll be back. Whereas with this, it was just, there was so much damage, you know, literally from the left, from my left ankle through to my my head, my whole entire left-hand side of my body, essentially. I still have so much muscle muscle imbalance to this day that I have to manage and deal with that um, it just, it was, it took years. Like it was just, it was years of work that I never, never expected. So to think that I could come back for Sochi was now is, is laughable. That's why you can laugh, but also it's probably that driven mindset that, that helped me and, and denial that helped me um, get through, you know, be part of that time. And a big part, I think of that like physical and, 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 and mental recovery for me was doing some of that coaching work, doing some of that mentoring work, doing some of that speaking work. I, I went and studied um, clinical exercise and Pilates because I was doing so much of it anyway. It just became my life. Never did I think that would become my job or my life later on. I literally just did it because I thought I was going back on tour and I would compete again and it would just be helpful to understand, um, you know, <laughs> my own body and, you know, biomechanics and, and, and anatomy and all of that. I thought that would just make me a better athlete. 
<clears throat> I was never, never doing it thinking I would end up spending the next 10 years of my life putting other people's bodies back together. So, um, crazy. you know, the irony. That's how it turned out. <laughs> yeah, the irony. Yeah, yeah. Yes, yeah. it is. It is ironic. So it, it, it's, it, you know, the injury, the rehabilitation, the the sports psychology, everything that went into those years of, of, of recovery, um, you know, and I learned very early on about anxiety, uh, about uh, depression. And I wouldn't say I was depressed. I definitely suffered from severe, severe anxiety, but it was very much related to the physical pain that I was that I was dealing with, you know, and there is a lot of um, obviously a lot of science now and, and research behind the links between physical pain and and, and mental pain, um, and uh, you know, real pain and ghost pain and and everything that I dealt with for, for years because of the the nerve damage, um, you know, and just multiple multiple MRIs and scans for years because just could not work out why I was getting such horrific pain still years after the accident. So wow. it's you know a, 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 honestly a a, a, a massive a massive challenge and it's probably what led to well I know it's what led to because in the end western medicine wasn't helping me I was just getting pumped full of drugs and pumped full of um painkillers and sleeping tablets to get me through years of my life and I think I just woke up one day and went this is I, I cannot go on like this so it really led to I guess looking more holistically at my health and it was really Chinese medicine that got me out of it all and got me off all the drugs and um, cleared my system and, and got my health back and got me into a better headspace. And, and um, I, I tried everything, like anything you can mention, I tried to get myself back. And I think that's what led to the development of Studio PP, my business. And it's, it's what led to, um, yeah, a, a very much, a very much more holistic approach to health and wellbeing than, than what I had back then as an athlete. Which is, I can imagine it's that, um, you know, passing it on sort of situation there that you've gone through all that adversity, but you've discovered this great new lifestyle that's helped you and then passing that on to helping others. It's kind of back to what we're talking about, you know, mentoring people, not necessarily always athletes, but just people in general, which, I mean, it seems like it's obviously going fantastically for you now, but also very rewarding. And for your own mental health and mental well-being, I'm sure that's helping you at the same time. Very much. And I think there's there's years of my life there that I, I don't want to say lost, but where I felt I couldn't give back to the sport or I couldn't even, uh, you know, probably give back to myself, to be fair. Um, it, it took a long time to come out of it. And I'm, I'm very um, open about that now. And I think that's what's attracted a lot of athletes. Um, but beyond that, and or business leaders and, um, uh, you know, anyone really to my business that may be struggling with uh, their health or, uh, or like I said, pain management or uh, injury rehabilitation because there's so many ways and so many angles to come at it. Um, and, and also you have to learn to work with the individual. And for, for me, it took a really long, long time. And, and, you know, we mentioned it earlier, I was used to very strict coaching. I was used to a very hard on all or nothing approach to sport and my rehab and my recovery required the exact opposite of that. Wow. You know, it's, I just, I, I had to aspect. learn, yeah. yeah, I had to learn to rest. I had to learn to recover. I had to learn to switch off. And it's something I still struggle with to this very day. I'm, <laughs> I can, like, I can almost hear, I can almost hear my boyfriend laughing at me in the background. Like I just. <laughs> what are you, what are you like, talking I, about? This isn't what, this yeah, isn't God, you. <laughs> I am, I'm such an all or nothing personality. So um, to learn to live in that in-between space, you know, and I think that is the essence of well-being, and that is the essence of, of health is, is that um, the balance, right. That we're all seeking and that we're all looking for. Um, 
because we, we can't all operate, you know, at, and, and sure, when you're trying to qualify for the Olympics, you operate at 110% because you're giving, you're giving your fucking everything. But like taking that approach when I didn't have an Olympics to qualify for was only hurting me. It was setting me back in my rehab. It was setting me back in my injury. It was setting me back mentally, physically. Um, so really, really, really big learning curve for me. And um, yeah. I, I'm a much better person and a healthier person today than I, than I was 10 years ago. It's always fascinating, those sliding doors moments that one thing can happen <laughs> and set you on an entire different path. People who are listening to this and, and are intrigued, Steph, about what you do and sort of uh, are interested in this, where, where can people sort of find information out, sort of get involved with what you're doing out there, direct people to, to, to it, plug it. <laughs> plug it, plug it. I mean, I think the best way to describe what I do these days is sort of um, – you know, translating high performance into everyday life, you know, like I said, bringing those sort of transferable skills that that I learned in, in, in sport uh, into everyday life and, and, and sharing them. I'm obsessed with high performance. So like I said, I'm obsessed with getting the best out of not just myself, but, um, but, but of anyone. And I think it's not because I just become, because I come from high performance sports or from a background, but I think I'm, I'm very passionate about helping others drive, you know, effort, better output, productivity, well-being, like I said, balance, health, whatever word resonates with you. Um, so Studio PP, which is my business, which, you know, aptly stands for premium performance, being the most premium version of yourself performing at your best, um, is all about that, uh, living a happier, healthier, more fulfilling life, if you will. So um, we do that physically, we do that mentally, and I, I spend most of my time these days doing uh, a lot of speaking and, and corporate health work. So right. you can find me on my website, which is stephprem.com.au. Uh, uh, and you can also find me through Studio PP. But I think as as much as I hate to admit it, the best place to find anyone these days is Instagram. Yep. Um, so the gram. At, at, Steph, <laughs> at Steffi Prem and you'll, you'll, you'll find the links to everything else I do there. Perfect. Two quick things before I let you go, Steph. First of all, I've got to just quickly touch on the commentary. Obviously, as I said, three Olympics, uh, Channel 10 back in 2014, last two with Channel 7, getting to work alongside the legend that is Dave Colbert. I mean, how, that must be a fun experience getting to sit alongside him and then bring all that expertise to the table to millions of people watching around Australia. Look, like I said, it's it's absolutely filled my fills my cup every four years. So when I get that phone call from uh, the network to say we want to have you back, it's um it's always an emotional and exciting moment. Dave Colbert is an absolute jet. I love working alongside him. He's taught me so much. Um, but I'm I'm very grateful for Leslie Tapsell, who's actually been the producer on those three games across both those networks, and who has kept uh, kept me involved in the sport and kept me involved on that commentary side of the team. And I, I love being able to give a voice back to the athletes and a true insight to the sport. And the main reason I do it is because my event uh, was commentated by an AFL football player back in the day when I competed. <laughs> who was it? Who did and, the, was and, the, and the it? Was Channel had that back in the day, didn't they? Without mentioning any names, let's just say it wasn't a it wasn't a great reflection of the sport. I've got the footage on my computer. I'm going to look this up afterwards. I need to I need to remember who who did it. So okay, I'm intrigued. So now. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I made a promise to myself that I would I would I would get on that commentary team one day and I would call that event what it what it should sound like and what it should feel like under your feet as an athlete um, and to be able to give that insight. And I'm grateful to work alongside Colbert, who lets me give that true insight. And he he's a like I said, an absolute jet at calling, at being a race caller. 
Yeah, and watching the extent of research he puts together is absolutely uh, insane. And and before let's go, Seth, you and I were talking a bit about this off here, but you're you're joining my world, podcasting. Yeah. This is something that uh, that you're getting involved in. G- give it a plug. How how did this come about, and uh, how addicting is it? It's more addicting than snowboarding, isn't it? Come on. Yeah, I think we, you know, we touched on it earlier. We both love a chat. So, um, I'm, uh, you know, uh, like I said earlier, I'm, I am, I'm pretty obsessed with high performance and, uh, and how, how, how people tick and work and, and get the best out of themselves. So, uh, it's a combination of that and wellbeing, uh, you know, and, and really exploring, I, I guess, mindset and mindfulness and, and, and how, and how that plays out for some pretty interesting people and characters, um, something I've always wanted to do. So um, post-pandemic, you know, I made a promise to myself that I'd do, you know, and especially after doing seven this year, after doing the commentary, I just thought uh, it's a really a creative project and outlet that I want to put some time and, and energy into. Uh, and it's sort of an extension of the work that I've done with Medibank the last few years as their health ambassador. They're now um, supporting my podcast to um, yeah, put a put a new health and wellbeing podcast out in the world. So that so will be coming out in the next called? few months. Are you allowed to tell us what it's called yet, or are we just got to keep watching this space? Tell, I can't tell you. Can't Watch tell. this space. Secrets. Yeah. All right. Okay. Yes. Well, like, yes. Follow, you follow you too on much. So- yeah, I know, right? This is, um, you know, they're gonna they're gonna hunt me down after this, but uh, obviously follow your <laughs> social media and when it's all out, people. Correct. Can, uh, it will be all. It, it'll all be uh, live, uh, well soon. And a couple of those characters we've spoken about today might might you might hear on the on the podcast soon. So it's if, very if you get if you get Dale Beg Smith, you, you send him my way, okay? Like you know, you can't have him all to yourself, all right? <laughs> when I when I get to that island, you're coming yep. with me. You Thank know? <laughs> you. Yes, I I definitely would appreciate that, Steph. It, it has been an absolute pleasure to be able to do this. Seriously, your story is so inspirational. It's heartbreaking. It's everything. You, you need to write a book. I really think you need to write a book on everything that you've sort of uh, done in your life and everything since. It, it really is a great story. But I uh, really appreciate your time on, on the show today and uh, look forward to you uh, kicking our ass in the, in the podcast landscaping uh, in only a couple of months' time. <laughs> Don't be ridiculous. It's been an absolute pleasure, an absolute honour. Thank you for having me. It's always um, great to take a trip down memory lane. Incredible chat there with Steph, learning so much about that and just the, the injury and everything that was involved in that and just how that completely changed her entire outlook on life. As I mentioned, sort of a real sliding doors moment and just coming off the disappointment of the Olympics and everything along those lines as well. So amazing that she's been able to turn that into something positive and to what she's doing today and uh, an incredible story there from Steph. And we very much thank her for her time. And any stories about Dale Begg Smith always make an interview better. So uh, we're, we're glad to know that Dale owns vans that just pick people up. It's it's really that simple. So I'm sure that if you've ever missed a van somewhere in the world and a random van just picked up, it's Dale. Dale's vans. He's just picking you up, ready to go, and saving you from situations out there. So uh, add it to the files of Dale Berg Smith being an incredible human as well. We've got so much coming your way here and off the podium. So excited for everything else that is happening. So stay tuned to our show, be it on social media, on wherever you get a podcast from, wherever you're listening to us right now. Remember to subscribe. Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, everywhere they are. Search for Off The Podium. Leave us some feedback. We'd love to hear what you think of the show. 
And as I said, social media as well, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube. You can watch the video version of this interview if you subscribe to us on YouTube and send us a message. We'd love to hear what you think of the, the Steph interview. Maybe you've got a Dale Begg Smith story that we've never asked you for. Send us in. We want to hear a Dale Begg Smith story. And also, if you've got any guests you'd like us to track down, get on the show, let us know. And we will do our very best to get them on and make you a happy listener. Because you are a happy listener. You listen to a great interview, but make you a happier listener essentially so that's what we can do for you by listening to off the podium thanks again to steph thanks again to everybody for listening shout out as always to the birmingham bull until we next speak again my name is ben this is off the podium and remember to go left go left